0: So we're continuing week three in the series on Titus. And uh, just let's remind ourselves first of all, what was the task that was set for Titus? What was that task? We heard uh, from Dan in, uh, as he brought those first uh, early verses of chapter one. In verse five, i uh, just grabbing uh, the phrase that was used in a few different translations, the New American Standard says, Set in order what remains. The complete Jewish Bible says, attend to the matters still not in order. The New Living says, complete our work there. The King James says, set in order the things that are wanting. The Amplified says, set right what remains unfinished. So that was a task uh, that was set for Titus uh, by the Apostle Paul. So what was the issue that needed to be addressed? And there's a clue already in uh, verse 1 of chapter 1, in the introduction. Paul has various ways of introducing uh, himself in the various epistles. Uh, Often he uses similar language, but sometimes he puts a bit of a, a particular emphasis. And he says in this letter to Titus, Paul, the sent one, says, "...I have been sent to teach them to know the truth that shows them how to live godly lives." What Paul observes is a church that has not been transformed. So let's just reflect a little bit on Crete and the state of the church there. Uh, there's a map coming up on the screen, just uh, in case people aren't quite sure where Crete is. The, the cream-coloured islands and land there you see is what we know as Greece. You've got Turkey over on the east side. And what's in red on that map is the island of Crete. Uh, one of the large uh, Cretan islands. Now, Scripture records that Paul spent possibly a few weeks uh, becalmed on uh, Crete on his way to Rome as a prisoner. The boat got there and wasn't making much progress. The concern was that winter was coming and the the bad weather was coming, uh, and uh, the ship went on to sail against Paul's advice, and that's the time it got shipwrecked uh, on the island of Malta. Now, on that whole journey, Paul is a prisoner. But he's allowed to have interactions. We know in different ports it specifically says he has interactions with believers. Uh, we don't know what happened on Crete. We have no idea. He was there potentially for a few weeks, waiting for the wind to come. Uh, possibly he had a bit of a check out of what was going on. Possibly while he was there, being Paul, being Paul, we would imagine he would have scouted out the land. What is the state of the church? Because you see, Paul, if you remember his early missionary uh, ventures, the first one didn't even quite get him onto the map. The second one got him right through Turkey and up around Greece before he headed back to Antioch. And the third journey pretty much was a similar route and going back and so forth. But on none of those missionary journeys, when he went about planting churches and so forth, did he visit Crete. So Crete came into play when he's being been taken, uh, because of his appeal to um, Caesar, he's been taken as a prisoner uh, for his appeal in Rome. Now, the early church tradition suggests that Paul returned to Crete sometime after his house arrest and before his final imprisonment. That's early church tradition. Can't vouch for it. It's not in the Scriptures, possibly. Um, there is a bit of a clue, I guess, in Titus, because Paul uses language to suggest, you know, to continue the work. It's like Paul had some connection. Could have been those few weeks. He's a, he's a powerful worker. Maybe he did a bit of uh, ministry in those few weeks when, while he was uh, en route to uh, the emperor? Uh, We don't know. But the point is, Paul didn't go about on a missionary journey, and there's not a sense here that he went about planting churches. So how was it that there was a church in Crete? Well, another clue from Scripture is that on the day of Pentecost, you know, there were a list of countries that people came from, and they heard the wonders of God being declared in their native tongue. So on that day of Pentecost, all these believers who have uh, just had this incredible encounter, the Holy Spirit has been poured out, the sound of the rushing wind, the flames, what looked like tongues of fire. And they go out in the streets declaring the good works of God. And amongst all the languages that were spoken, and the people groups who heard this incredible testimony of God were some guys from Crete, Jews. They'd come to Jerusalem. They were there for the, for the festival. And they heard in the Cretan language... God's name being glorified, God's works being extolled. It's possible, therefore. We know that 3,000 got saved that day. We know that the church took off in Jerusalem. We know that uh, there were people from all over. I mean, God knows what he's doing when he arranges these sovereign moves. And so you could imagine that there would have been this testimony, uh, almost like when you think of the, you know, the demoniac up in Galilee at Gennesaret, that he went about teaching and, and uh, declaring uh, the, Jesus, the name of Jesus. So we know that there were people impacted by the ministry of both Jesus directly and also at Pentecost who would have gone back and started this experience of what is church, what does it mean to be a Christian. But the thing about Crete, so we, so we know that there were definitely Cretans there and we'll assume that some of them got saved and we'll even perhaps wonder the, about the possibility that some of those have gone back and have started to live the Christian life uh, on this island. Now, it's worthy, and I know we've, we've looked at Crete a little bit over the last couple of weeks, but it's early just to consider a few things about the Cretan culture. It, what it is regarded as the earliest advanced European civilization. So, way before the Greeks took over the island, the people living on Crete uh, were known historically as a very advanced for their times. Civilization that was part of their culture in Greek mythology, Crete is the birthplace of Zeus. So, if you're a Greek, if you're on Crete, Zeus, who is one of those you know, I don't know a lot about Greek mythology, I haven't studied it that much, but I think Zeus is one of the big players, one of the, the ones that, that get a fair bit of um rap. And so, if you're a Crete, Cretan, and you're into your Greek mythology. It's almost like this is your home team. This is your home god you're going to barrack for. There's a sense in which Zeus is going to be an important part of the culture of this place. And we also know that the island has a reputation as being a source country for mercenaries. King David secured some mercenaries from Crete. Uh, we know that the emperor, Roman, various Roman emperors would use Cretans as part of their mercenary forces. It was a land uh, that had an interesting history and all this would have been reflected in who the people were that these potential uh, people saved in the revival at Pentecost have gone back to to try and establish churches. So here we get to Titus. Um, The other thing that we note from from Titus itself is that Epimenides uh, is quoted, a Cretan, as saying, the people of Crete are all liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And Paul validates that uh, uh, commentary from one of their own and says it's true. So Paul is prepared, this guy that's going out to preach the faith, to preach the good news and, uh, you know, this ambassador of peace and minister of reconciliation, uh, he's prepared to make this grand statement uh, that this acknowledgement about the people is a generic general comment is true. That's what Titus says. And so we need to get a sort of a sense of the type of, you know, because the, 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 the church is going to be um, a combination of, you know, often where people are coming from and who they are and what their cultural and, and previous experiences be and has been, and to the degree to which they are then being transformed by the work of the Holy Ghost. So, you know, God can create in every culture something good and beautiful. But even so, that church is probably going to reflect different things. It's going to have a different expression, a different manifestation of the manifold wisdom of God. It's part of how God reveals his glory to the angelic hosts, is showing how a people can be transformed and renewed into something beautiful that reveals to even the angel stuff they didn't have a clue about. Actually revealing the the essence of who God is. And that's a key part of what this whole scripture is about. So I've jumped a bit ahead by saying that. But there you go, whetting your appetite. So Paul's instructions to Titus. So here we are, chapter 2. We can start timing now because I'm uh, starting my sermon. Chapter 2. Paul's instructions to Titus. And he basically has, uh, there's uh, an instruction in verse 1, the first verse, and then the final verse in verse 15. So verse 1, just from a couple of different translations, says this. But you explain what kind of behavior goes along with sound teaching. Another, another um, not so much translation, but um, the passion, so paraphrase. Your duty is to teach them to embrace a lifestyle that is consistent with sound doctrine. And in verse 15, the final verse, these things, having run through the list of behaviours, uh, these things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. No one is to disregard you. These are the things you should say encourage and rebuke with full authority. Don't let anyone look down on you. You must teach these things and encourage the believers to do them. You have the authority to correct them when necessary. So don't let anyone disregard what you say. All right, I've possibly now, having jumped ahead, not quite covered the base here. So Paul has, whether it's in this three-week sojourn, or whether he's revisited Crete after his house arrest in Rome, we don't know. But Paul has made his own assessment about the state of the church, a church in all likelihood that he did not plant. So this is not a church where he's gone in and been the the virgin teacher that's come for the very first time to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. He's coming to a people who have already heard it, possibly 30 years earlier. Possibly they've already had an experience that is now um, taking something good, something birthed in God, but along the way, contaminated by culture, lack of good teaching, no proper church structure set in place, and these people have found their own way. And from from this chapter, what we understand is that the behaviour of these people did not reflect what you would expect from good Christian people. And Paul's identified the issue. They have a behaviour problem. They're not the only church to have a behavior problem, but they have a problem with behavior. And Paul is instructing Titus at the end here. One, you've got to address it. And not only do you need to address it, but you need to do it with authority. And Paul is reminding Titus that he has authority. He has authority based on the Word of God to speak to these people about their behavior. Now he says words like "Don't let anyone look down on you. Uh, don't let anyone disregard what you say. No one is to disregard you." Well, how do you? That's not really up to Titus, is it? If people want to, people can think what they like of me, of anyone here that got up to speak. They can think what they like of Titus. I mean, people have their opinions, don't they? So you know, it's a bit odd, isn't it? To Tell somebody they're somehow responsible for the way that people might regard them. Well, obviously, ultimately that is true. But the instruction of Paul to Titus is to let him know himself, the authority by which he can speak. And the way and the manner and the posture he has in the way he delivers his preaching and his teaching. Remember the last two weeks, what's been the big theme in Titus so far? Sound teaching. Good teaching. Good teaching solid doctrine, all right? And Titus is to preach and teach and exhort, and as we read in this chapter, show by example what it is to live the Christian life and be able to then encourage and correct when he sees things inconsistent with that. What I'm going to do, I might need my glasses, we'll see how we go. I'm just going to read out a a passage from uh, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 13. Yeah, get my glasses. Um, Because here is Paul addressing another church that has a problem dealing with sin. So let's just have this in our minds as we consider what we're reading today. I'll read just from verse 2 to 10. Uh, So this is 2 Corinthians chapter 13. I have already warned those who had been sinning when I was there on my second visit. Now I again warn them and all others, just as I did before, that next time I will not spare them. I will give you all the proof you want that Christ speaks through me. Christ is not weak when he deals with you. He is powerful among you. Although he was crucified in weakness, he now lives by the power of God. We, too, are weak, just as Christ was. But when we deal with you, we will be alive with him and will have God's power. Examine yourselves to see if your faith is genuine. Test yourselves. Surely you know that Jesus Christ is among you. If not, you have failed the test of genuine faith. As you test yourselves, I hope you will recognize that we have not failed the test of apostolic authority. We pray to God that you will not do what is wrong by refusing our correction. I hope we won't need to demonstrate our authority when we arrive. Do the right thing before we come, even if that makes it look like we have failed to demonstrate our authority. For we cannot oppose the truth, but must always stand for the truth. We are glad to seem weak if it helps show that you are actually strong. We pray that you will become mature. I'm writing this to you before I come, hoping that I won't need to deal severely with you when I do come. For I want to use the authority the Lord has given me to strengthen you, not to tear you down. So we can see here again that Paul takes sin in the church very seriously. Now, it's true that he had warned these people, but it seems for a second time. He's a minister of God's grace he, he seems like you know they're still there in the church they haven't yet been kicked out or otherwise dealt with but he's making it very clear that whatever without whatever the issues were and that the letters identify some issues the Corinthian Church had that this was just intolerable to continue in a church that is there to lift high and to glorify the name of Jesus Christ and so There's this combination, if you like, of grace, of mercy, but also a very clear statement that it cannot continue. And it's interesting that Paul uses language that says, well, you know, he's quite determined that if he has to, he will deal with it. Not to show that he's some great, powerful leader, because he makes it clear. He says, I would rather be shown to be weak by not having to deal with this, by you just getting your own act together. Because it's not about me showing my power and position as the apostle of Jesus, where I can start just, you know, lording it over you somehow. That is not the heart of Christ. And this is the essence, really, of the issue that's being addressed in Crete and with Titus. In the very, you've got to understand that that Paul comes to this as a Pharisee. He knows the law. He's a law keeper. He knows the law better than most. He also knows better than most that the law is incapable. In other words, following the law and all the good works that you do in following the law is incapable of saving you. He makes that crystal clear. There's no crystal clear throughout his letters. He's on the road to Damascus and he has an encounter with Jesus. And Jesus says, Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This passionate, zealous Pharisee, preaching the law and declaring the goodness and holiness of God has an encounter with Jesus where he he comes to realize that the way he has imagined Jesus and God, God, he hadn't imagined Jesus at all, is just so completely wrong. And this is the point of the revelation of Jesus Christ and this great mystery that Paul teaches and preaches on. Jesus is not who you think he is. God is not even quite who you think he is. In fact, the people who know God best, the angels who have seen him in all his magnificence and all his glory, they don't really understand who God really is because they've just seen him in such a... a it's, when you see God and you see his glory and his majesty and his magnificence, it's like, wow, how do you handle that? What they don't realise is just this, the, the innate beauty of a Father and a Son and a Holy Spirit who live... In the most awesome and beautiful communion. I enjoyed, I was just reading something um, that, that Shane passed to me during the week, and I followed some links back back to some other stuff that he'd written previously, and there was a, a beautiful article that spoke about this incredible deference that the Trinity have one to the other. The preference they would show one to the other. You see, God, God, each person in the Godhead is well entitled to. Understand, I forget that there are all these P words that Shane used, position, uh, position, um, all all these, posture, power, I should have remembered, they're all great five words. But this thing about posture is what wasn't understood, the way God postures himself. And you see... Paul has encountered this Jesus and what he's learned and this revelation he's been receiving before he started his ministry, before the first missionary journey. But as he goes on and establishes the churches, Paul is clearly understanding more and more revelation of who God is, how the Trinity works. And he's also understood that the purpose of the church, one of the purposes of the church, as he says in Ephesians chapter 1, and I've preached before, is to declare the manifold wisdom of God the principalities and the powers who knew God but didn't really know him the church is meant to reflect something of who God is and how he operates and so Paul has come and he's seeing an expression of the church in Crete that looks nothing like the way God is (laughs) nothing like his the way God would conduct himself the posture of God not remotely close And so Paul is just seeing reflected in their behaviour that this is not a church that's anywhere near being transformed by the working of the Holy Spirit to be sanctified, to be set apart, to know the power of God in operation, to declare the truth and to see the mighty works of God take place. This was a people who had had a taste of it. People, maybe 30 years previously, had seen something amazing at Pentecost. But along the way, without sound teaching, And without a community of faith established the way that Paul set up communities of faith, he saw a problem. So that's why in chapter 1, we see that Titus has said, you've got to address this issue. One of the first things you've got to do is point leadership. Who can what? Who can teach? Because without it, you're not going to have a church that's of any value, that's worth its salt. Is that a correct expression to use? Probably not an expression worth its salt. I don't know, but there you go. I've said it. Hey, I was supposed to be preaching. Where am I? Um, there's a PowerPoint somewhere here. Let's get back to it. So, behavior. Why does it matter? After all, we're fallen creatures saved by grace, right? The law is now written on our hearts. It's true. That's what Isaiah says is going to happen. What business does an evangelical or Pentecostal church have teaching behavior? Question for you to think on, maybe. So, I think that's the slide I want. So, I mean, Paul addresses it in several verses in chapter two. So, well, let's look at those first because we're doing Titus chapter two. So, Paul says, in terms of Paul' behavior. He says, then they will not bring shame on the Word of God. So the reason not to engage in poor behavior is that you would not bring shame on the Word of God. In verse 10, he says, talking about good behavior, he says, then they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive in every way. So straight away, how the church is reflected to the community. Because after all, Paul is about preaching the gospel and seeing people come to faith. He wants. He knows the church, the churches he's planting here, here, here and everywhere. And the whole mechanism he's setting up to have these churches strong and growing and in faith and in love and all the things he writes about. Um, He wants a strong church on the island of Crete. And so he knows that this issue of behavior has to be addressed. But he also explains it this way in verse 11. For the grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people. And we are instructed to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. We should live in this evil world with wisdom, righteousness, and devotion to God. And in verse 14, he gave his life to free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us, and to make us his very own people, totally committed To doing good deeds—it's the essence of the gospel. You can't separate it. And I think as evangelicals, we get a bit confused because we know it's not about good works. Good works don't get us saved. We know that, right? And so it's almost like in our brains, there's almost this thought that well, it's not about good works, then, is it? Well, no. Our salvation isn't dependent on our good works, but our good works are very dependent on us being saved. It's the fruit, it's the result, it's the expected outcome of lives that have come in belief and repentance, saying, God, I'm not here to live anymore. Jesus, be the Lord of my life. You show me how to live this life. That's, that's salvation, right? And, and, and it's just the logical outcome and the outworking of not just making that a one-off thought, but actually a choice that this is how I'm now going to live my life. And one of those verses you may have noticed back in that 2 Corinthians 13, I think it was verse 5, Paul actually invites the people to examine themselves. (laughs) How genuine is your faith? I mean, you may have decided one day to follow Jesus, but now you've decided to follow Zeus. Okay. All right. Your choice. But just be clear about it. Don't pretend you're following Jesus if you're not. Don't try and find some hybrid, made-up sort of way of combining, yeah, I'm a Cretan and Zeus is somewhere in there, but I like Jesus too and I'll sort of do some sort of merge of how it all works. It's just rubbish. God is God. Every other God is just ridiculous in comparison. God is holy. He is beautiful. He is holy just. He gave his life to free us from every kind of sin. So to live a life that is not freed from sin, so he's addressed some of the issues, and you know, well, I'm not going to spend time actually running through all the behaviours he addresses, but some of them are addicted to behaviours. Well, we've been, He gave his life that we'd be set free. So part of the Christian life, part of the Christian witness, is not just saying he's done it, but demonstrating that he's done it, living a life that shows that we have been set free, we have been delivered, cleansed, but to make us his very own people. That's important. He is calling us out to be a set-apart, holy, sanctified people. And this is a theme in Titus. In a very short book, we keep seeing, at least four times written, totally committed to doing, what? Good deeds. So it's not just about, just scrap the bad behavior. Not at all. It's about a behavior that is fixed on becoming Christ-like, a behaviour that is fixed on being transformed to do that which is good. And it essentially means, when I say being Christ-like, see, Christ demonstrated in those 33 years he lived what it actually meant. He showed what God was like. That's what he did. And so everything about how he went about doing things was demonstrating something about the character of God. And so doing good deeds, serving one another, That's what it's about. Good deeds is about serving one another. It's not about doing things that suit me. It's about doing things that serve you. And you cannot have a gospel that somehow ignores that. Because you're being transformed to what? You're being made into what? God, and you start thinking, and in our worship, we think about all these beautiful aspects of God, how generous he is, and all these things. Well, we are being transformed into Becoming like God. And so it's only obvious that good deeds follow from that. Otherwise, the sense is we're not really being transformed. We have these belief systems and we have all these new behaviours, but ultimately I'm still looking out for me because that's what the world does. That's the Cretan culture and it's the culture of every culture. We look after ourselves. The Christian life is to be committed to doing good deeds, not to get saved, but because... We are accepting the salvation that God offers and by faith allowing him to work in us to transform us, to become like him. And Paul, in so many different scriptures, writes all about that. If you're interested, we can have a... I didn't want to work through necessarily all the verses. But if you look at the um, specific behaviours that they were to abandon, it included slander, gossip, uh, too much alcohol... Sorry, I didn't make this big enough, sorry. Uh, Argumentative, stealing, just a few issues. It wasn't actually a long list. Um, I reckon Paul saw behaviours far more than those four that he's nominated (laughs) when he was there um, because he seems like really disturbed by the poor behaviour. And yet he hasn't gone on with this big list of do's and don'ts. Uh, Certainly the don'ts, it's not a big list. And I'm not going to go through these and teach on them this morning. I encourage you can read the list. You can ask Holy Spirit, is there something here that's something I should be thinking about? How is my gossip going? How much alcohol is too much alcohol? Am I being too argumentative? Am I stealing? I mean, there's a whole, you know, let Holy Spirit deal with you every time you open Scripture on these things. But he does talk about adopting certain behaviours. All different words used in different translations but being temperate, dignified. Self-controlled in different ways. This one comes up a lot in Titus, encouraging people to be self-controlled. That when he gets to the young man, it's the only one he, he actually lists for the young man. Just you know, that's like probably a big enough challenge, you know, to be self-controlled. Um, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. To be reverent. To encourage uh, love uh, in, in the husbands for the children. To be sensible again. Self-controlled. Pure workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands. Self-controlled, pleasing, showing. Good faith. So Paul gives examples of what it can look like. But again, I didn't really want to make this discussion today about particular behaviors, because Paul has seen particular behavior in Crete and he addresses some of them. The behavior he might note here might be some might be the same, some might be different. The point is the Holy Spirit is at work in our heart to bring conviction. And, and the, the real takeaway for us is not necessarily to feel good about ourselves because we're not that big a gossip. And, you know, we there's these four things and you can probably escape most of them, so we're probably doing all right. Um, that's not the point. The point is that poor behaviour on behalf of, of a community of faith reflects very poorly in our witness. And it demonstrates that what we talk about and what we say we believe is perhaps not held in the same conviction because our behavior ought to reflect what our true convictions are. Um, We always do well when it comes to the Scriptures to see things where we could do better. And so anytime you read the Scriptures that suggest that we need to be encouraging others and loving others and doing good and all the things that are listed, uh, they're always worthy of meditation and consideration, saying, Father, is there something here where I need to change this week? Is there something here practical for me to get right? But as I um, you know, just reflected on this chapter and in, in, uh, in bringing this word today, it's really, I think the bigger question I'd like you to be considering is you know, why, why our behaviours matter. And you know, we, we, can, we, we can even tie together, I, I think, our behaviour with the whole area of worship. You know, Paul made it clear that we would offer our bodies, present our bodies as a living sacrifice as a living sacrifice. Just all that stuff just surrendered to God and allow that renewing to come, allow that transforming to come, that we might know the perfect will of God. We might know those things that we're actually meant to be doing. And so that's the, that, that's the posture that we ought to adopt as a church in this regard, that, that we're always mindful of behavior. One, as an evidence of the continuing, not the old-time transformative work that happened years ago, but the continuing sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit? Is it, are we more sanctified today than last month, than last year, than last decade, than the 70s? They're good questions to ask. And as a community of faith, are we those that are always encouraging? And even though this is directed to Titus, um, the other thing I thought worthy for us to think about this morning because, you know, Titus, is he's, he's addressed as, as a true son in the faith. We don't know exactly his position in the church. What we do know about Titus is he was a colleague of Paul. He went with him. Clearly, he, he, he turns up in different locations where Paul is ministering. And, and I, I'm not sure on this, but my understanding that he ended up planting churches up in the Yugoslavia sort of area. That's where Titus sort of ended up. That might be just more church tradition again. but um, So he went on to do this apostolic sort of work. But the point is, he was left, Paul saw churches, groups of faith, communities of faith that were really struggling. He's told Titus, look, these guys are in solid teaching. Find some local people who you can put in charge, who can teach. It was only a temporary thing in a sense because it, you'll see next week at the, when you get to the end of, the, of chapter 3, Paul wants to send some other guys, What of other guys to come in and help and says, Titus, you can join me over here. Right. But there's a particular assignment for Titus at this point. But the point is he had authority. And it's good for us, I think, in church to remind ourselves that there is an authority, a scriptural authority, where good order in the church is something that is laid out for us and we need to be mindful of and, and consider the degree to which even that is an authority that we Uh, in in our maturity, in our understanding of Scripture, uh, where it's appropriate for that authority potentially um, to be part of the way we interact with people as well. That's just a question for you to ponder. I'm just going to leave it at that, a question for some to ponder. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, it reminds us again of just how beautiful and awesome you are. The Apostle Paul had so many other things to be concerned about so many other church plants and people he loved, people he knew, people he was connected with. and Yet there was something about Creed, Lord God, where he was concerned about the state of your church and he's got Titus to go there to put things right. Father, that reflects your heart. and We know that that's your heart even for us as an assembly here in Box Hill. Father, you want us to be in a right path. You want us to be positioned in a way where we are growing as a community of faith, where we are learning more about you more about how you want us to live, transforming us, enabling us to be those conduits of your love, your power, your truth that will set people free. Lord, please help us to be a better church. Help us to be a better church, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.